Okay, let's get into this morning's lesson. It's been many years since college when I took my philosophy courses and my apologetics courses, but I want to give you kind of like a, an overview or summary of some modern philosophy, and you'll see why in just a couple minutes. How many of you have heard the word existentialism? Let me see your hands. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Existentialism is basically this idea that life really has no meaning. It's an it's a outgrowth of there's no God. And if there's no God, then life has no meaning. And that's actually a very logical, consistent belief. If there's no God, you're right, life has no meaning. Obviously, I believe there is a God, so life has meaning. But if there's no God, life has meaning, no meaning. So existentialism says, but nevertheless, we're here. Let's make the most of it. Let's pour meaning into life. Let's make meaning and live a good life. That's existentialism. Right on the heels of existentialism comes nihilism. Existentialism says life's got no meaning, but let's you know, give it all we got and make meaning. Nihilism says, well, if life's got no meaning, then making meaning has no meaning. And then there's fatalism, which says, well, if life has no meaning and making meaning has no meaning, why bother? Fatalism's just kind of like, like, everything's miserable, life sucks. I had to read a, a book by a guy like this when I was in college, and it was the most depressing thing I'd ever read. The author was named Camus. And I was like, why did you make me read this? This is miserable. It was to help us understand what that worldview teaches. Existentialism, nihilism, fatalism. Probably the most famous guy in this school of existentialism would be a guy named Nietzsche. Almost everybody's heard of Friedrich, or Friedrich Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, however you want to pronounce it. And Nietzsche's famous for saying, God is dead. That's his, his famous statement, and everybody's heard it. And that's why this new movie's out, God is not dead. It's contrary to what Nietzsche taught. But it's still a very famous belief. His idea isn't that God was alive and then we killed him. His idea was God was a myth, but now modern man is beyond that need of that myth, and so the idea of God is now dead. Nietzsche taught that God was dead. He lived an existentialist life. Remember, the idea is life has no meaning, so let's make meaning. Towards the end of his life, he had a nervous breakdown and died a lonely, miserable, and broken man. And I'm just thinking, you know, that philosophy didn't work for him. After his breakdown, he wrote some letters to some people that he was close to, some close friends and other professionals, some relatives. And he signed these letters, Dionysus. Now, Dionysus is the Greek god of madness. So it's kind of like him saying, hey, I went nuts, and I'm signing it as the god of nuts. But Dionysus was also the god of wine and of merrymaking and, you know, crazy living. The god of happiness, you know, just riotous living. So I found it very interesting that here's this guy who denies God, understands that life has no meaning, so we must do everything we can to find meaning. He failed. At the end of his life, he basically admits, even though he doesn't admit it, just by the name he used, Dionysus, that his experiment, his belief, his philosophy is an utter failure. Man 
that is mankind, craves happiness. We crave fulfillment and meaning in life, but we can't find it. Uh, there's this guy who's a philosopher, a scientist, and a mathematician. If you've got any kind of you know, formal education, you've heard of him. His name is Blaise Pascal. And he tried to answer this question about why people are looking for, for meaning and yet can't find it. Here's what he wrote. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help that he cannot find in those that are, though none can help since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. I know that's a little confusing, so there's a summary statement, kind of a paraphrase. Here's what it says. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus. Nietzsche tried to fill that space. And it's interesting that Pascal is attributed with the vacuum word because one of his fields of expertise was the vacuum. And he wrote extensively on vacuums. So it makes sense that they would use that word. Nietzsche tried to fill life, that void, but it was like trying to pour junk into space. You'll never fill it. It just doesn't happen. You can't fill it. But before Nietzsche, before Pascal, there was a, a man who is credited as being the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon. In fact, he wrote the book in the Bible called Proverbs, which is a book about wisdom. It's a brilliant book. You want to know how to have a good life, read the book of Proverbs. He went where Nietzsche went first. He tried existentialism before Nietzsche was ever born. He flirted with fatalism and nihilism. Nietzsche ended up dead and broken and without hope. But Solomon, being the wisest man who ever lived, he tried nihilism, but it didn't work. He found something that did. He found the meaning that Nietzsche said didn't exist. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about in the Bible. It's Solomon's quest for meaning in life. And it reads just like a, you know, an existentialist novel at first. You've probably heard the words that the book starts out with. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Or meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Well, on his quest, he lists in a summary some of the things that he tries to find meaning in life. So he starts off with meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Oh, okay, so he's an existentialist. Here's the things he tries to find meaning, to make happiness in life. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. Basically, he's saying, I tried Dionysus. Now, this was written before Dionysus existed, but I tried Dionysus. I tried wine and folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. Now, when he says he planted gardens and parks, don't think about, you know, your little 20-foot garden in your backyard. This is the richest man on the planet. Think of the richest man on the planet wanting to do a park project. 
Think of massive acreage. Think of fountains and trees and birds and shaped plants. Think of the most beautiful landscaping you've ever seen. Now we understand what Solomon was trying to accomplish. He put all his money and his effort into doing the best he could. He says, I bought male and female slaves. I had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. You want a good time, you go to a concert. He just bought concerts. He bought the singers. They lived on his palace. You know, sing for me. Whenever he wanted, the newsboys would perform. Whenever he wanted. You know, hey, let me hear a little bit more of that. Yeah, that's good stuff. He had a harem. He says, the delights of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for my labor. So you imagine for a moment you're the richest person on the planet. You are a multi-billionaire. You've got credit cards that never run out. You could buy a country and everything in it. This is the money Solomon had. He said, I did whatever I wanted to pursue happiness and find meaning. Now listen to what he says. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. One of the things he goes back to a lot is wealth because that's the thing that we can all resonate with too. So I'm going to talk about wealth in just a moment too. But I want to let you know one of the things he said about amassing this great fortune. He made so much money that the trickle-down effect made all of Jerusalem wealthy. Silver became like, you know, like steel. You know, you got a silverware, a drawer full of silverware. Maybe it's made out of steel or aluminum. You can afford it. It's cheap. You can go to the store and buy it for a buck. It's nothing. But you can't do that with silver. If you want a a case of silver, it's going to cost you serious money. But silver was so plentiful in Solomon's kingdom that it was like, to us, just metal. It was nothing. He made everybody rich just by association. That's how wealthy he was. Well, here's what he says. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This is meaningless and a great misfortune. You store up all this money, and the person who's going to inherit it, just might be an idiot. True story. Um, I was meeting with a guy just yesterday. Had a very wealthy grandfather. But for some stupid reason, grandfather never wrote out a will. So when he died, the government got all the money. Wow. How mad would you be a granddad? (laughs) I mean, the guy was a millionaire. Could have made the whole family rich. But because of lack of foresight, the government got it. Solomon was saying, making lots of money is just a waste of time because you're not going to take it with you and whoever you leave it to may be an idiot anyway. What's the point? Everything. What's the point? That's the name of my sermon, by the way. What's the point? Everything's meaningless. What's the point? Most of us think, though, that 
our lives would be significantly better if we had lots of money. And yet Solomon, who's the wisest man who ever lived, said that's not the case. Now, I tend to disagree with the wisest man who ever lived. What's that make me? <laughs> yeah, an idiot. He's the wisest. Not only is he the wisest man who ever lived, but he had the money. He knew what it was like to have the money. And he said, hey, this doesn't do it. Yeah, this just, just doesn't do it. So we've got the wisest man who ever lived with the experience who says it doesn't do it. And yet, we still want it. So there are people like you and I who've won the lottery. I've got a video clip I want to share with you. Let's take a look. But for many, financial happiness comes at a cost. I was hoping it would change my life for the better, but in reality, it changed it for the worse. Winner William Bud Post III faced a slew of problems, among them a brother who tried to have him killed, a landlady who took a third of his jackpot in a lawsuit, a conviction on an assault charge, and bankruptcy. And he's not alone. Juan Rodriguez was a parking attendant making less than 30000 a year when he won a jackpot worth $149 million. Soon after, his wife divorced him and took half his winnings. In South Florida, a woman is on trial accused of killing a man who won a $30 million jackpot. She pleaded not guilty. I think winning the lottery is a real double-edged sword. Some people are able to really feel happier, have a more comfortable life. But more often than not, people are overwhelmed. The money erodes away at their relationships. They get self-destructive. And at the end of the day, they would have been better off not winning the lottery. Nevertheless, there are, of course, still plenty of people hoping to walk away as the winner of tonight's big jackpot, and they're happy to take their chances, Matt. All right, Erica. Well, I went online and looked up some stories of lottery winners. Let me share with you just a few of the ones I found. Jack Whitaker won $314.9 million, and I quote, Since then, a long list of arrests, lawsuits, broken relationships, and death. In 2007, his then-wife, Jewel, admitted she wished she had torn up the ticket. I know you're saying, still, I'd like to try. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but the thing is, we think it's going to give us happiness, and it doesn't. In fact, for these people, it gives them the opposite. It gives them even misery. This guy, William Bud Post, we just heard about, he described the experience of winning the lottery as a nightmare, and he wished it had never happened. He was sued by his former girlfriend because she wanted the money. His brother hired a hitman, hoping to kill him and inherit the money. He went into some family businesses, lost them all, ended up within a year, a million dollars in debt, and then started living off of his Social Security checks. Oh, Steve, that doesn't happen to everybody. No, it sure doesn't. But it happened to Jack Whitaker, it happened to William Post, it happened to Luke Bittard, who won 1.3 million pounds. He got bored with his wealth and went back to work at McDonald's. <laughs> Go win the lottery. You too can work at McDonald's. <laughs> A guy in Sicily won 79 million pounds in the Italian lottery. Before he could even claim the money, all these groups started protesting that the government should seize the money. And he wouldn't come forward because he was afraid the mafia would come after him. So when this was written, the guy never came forward. 
I don't know what happened. I, I'd come forward, take the money, and move to America myself, but whatever. <laughs> Janet Lee, she won $18 million. Eight years later, she filed for bankruptcy. So, story after story. Mark Gardner won 11 million pounds, lost all his friends, lost touch with his family. And these friends he lost, he bought them all houses. Michael Carroll, he won $9.7 million. Since then, he's appeared in court more than 30 times, been jailed for drug-related offenses, and in 2008, he was down to $500,000 of the $9.7 million. What Solomon wrote is true. You don't find meaning or happiness out of money. He went on to write this, Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Another true story. People I know. Why is it that I know people who know people with money? <laughs> I even know people with money. I know people with lots of money. Oh, well. <laughs> Apparently, it doesn't matter. It wouldn't do me any good. But he knows this woman who is, well, if there was a million air club, she'd be queen of the club. Because I guess you need a million dollars to be a millionaire. You know, she could spend a million dollars and it wouldn't even dent her fortune. Okay, she's got tens of millions, hundreds of millions. Very rich. And the man said to her, how much are you giving to your mother every month? She says, I don't give her any. And he said, what? This is another millionaire. Saying, why don't you give your mother money? She's your mother. If she needed it, she would ask. Your mother would rather be homeless pushing a shopping cart than ask you for money. You should give her money. I don't understand. I knew a millionaire who, when he'd park his car, would ask somebody to watch the meter because he wouldn't put a dime in it. <laughs> People are funny. I don't know. And of course, when I become a multimillionaire, I won't have these problems. I'm just, just saying. <laughs> Whoever loves money never has enough money. Listen, there is nothing wrong with having a fortune. It's only a problem if you love it if you don't prioritize it. Some people have loads of money and they handle it well. God bless them. Truly, truly. Whoever loves, money, uh, loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb and as he comes so he departs, he takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. So he goes through all this stuff and he says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Meaningless, it's all meaningless. What's the point? There's no point. We don't have time to go through all like 11 or 12 chapters of his experiences, one after the other after the other. Um, not only was he wealthy, not only did he big par build parks, he was intelligent. He was like the chief scientist of his day. So he tried education. He tried relationships. He tried alcohol, wine, women, and song. Everything he found to give no meaning. But during his journey, he did find things that were worthwhile. And he shares them throughout the book. For example, in chapter 2, he says this. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. So the wisest man who's ever lived, the wealthiest man who's ever lived, the guy who's tried everything to find meaning says the best you can do is have a good meal, a good drink, and a good job. Now let me ask you a question. How many in this room 
have ever had a really good meal? Please put up your hand, seriously. Everybody, wow. Okay, let me, let me do, how many of you have had a really good meal more than once a year? Wow, how many of you have had a really good meal once a month? Almost as many hands, but not as many. I know, it's not Thanksgiving every month, but some of you, and I won't do the hands anymore, once a week? Dude, once a day? Three times a day? According to the wealthiest, wisest man who's ever lived, you've got the best that life has to offer. But give me more, give me better. We don't recognize what we've got. We've got it so good, we don't know it. You know, if I did this question in South Africa, the answer, hands might not have gone up at all. You know, not everybody gets to eat like we do. I was walking through the mall the other day and looking at all the overweight people. I was like, wow. Look at all these big people. Part of me is like, man, we're falling apart as a country. The other part of me is like, wow, we're blessed as a country. Look at all this food we get. We get so much food that we can just eat ourselves sick. And we do. And I'm like, wow, what a blessing. But we have so many blessings, we forget we're blessed, and we're always looking for the next thing. Chapter later, he writes something similar. I know that there's nothing better for men than to be happy and to do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift from God. So Solomon may have started out as an existentialist. He may have flirted with nihilism and fatalism, but Solomon found a way to meaning. He found a good and purposeful and meaningful life. Listen to what he said. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without him, without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases God... God gives him wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. So, according to Nietzsche, God is dead. You have to find meaning in life yourself, even though there is no meaning. And he died in a broken, sad man. According to Solomon, life is meaningless unless you find God. Then you find meaning, and then you find happiness. Again, you can argue with the wisest man who's ever lived, who's done it all, and say he's wrong. Or you can try it and see if he's right. Solomon said the best life a person can have on this side of the pearly gates is the life of pleasing God. This is not natural for us. This is not something we stumble into by default. This is something we have to commit to. Speaking of it not being natural, listen to what he says in the seventh chapter. This only have I found. God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. God made us good, but man, have we screwed everything up. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a realist. I don't even like listening to the news anymore. It's just, just depressing. And almost everything that's depressing is how people are hurting people. Left and right and backwards and forwards. The International Standard Version put it this way. I have discovered only this. God made human beings for righteousness, but they seek many alternatives. 
We're looking for something better? Better than righteousness? There's, there's this fatal flaw within us. We have something good. We're looking for something better. Ecclesiastes 7.20 sums it up like this. There is not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. Now, let me ask you an honest question. You don't have to raise your hand, but I will. I'm not ashamed because I know we're all the same in this. Here's the question. How many of you have ever done something that you know is wrong? Okay, thanks for sharing, putting up your hands with me. Now, it gets even worse than that. How many of you knew something was wrong and you didn't want to do it And you did it anyway. What's wrong with us? Why in the world would we not want to do something we know is wrong and still do it? The Bible calls that sin. There's something wrong with us. It's a sickness. It's a disease. We can't help it. We we have to do wrong. Just try to be perfect. Try it. You will fail. And I don't fault you for that. There's a cure for that disease. The The fault comes in when you don't seek the cure. And if we're prone to do things that are wrong when we know they're wrong, we're prone to not do things that are right when we know they're right. And this is where the rubber meets the road because if we don't get the cure, we will die in our sins. And the future, according to the Bible, for those of us who die in our sins is not bright. A lot of fire, but not a lot of brightness, if you know what I'm saying. So God has offered us a solution. He's offered us a cure. Here's what he says, by the way. Remember, he said before, the good life is for the person who pleases God. He says, now all has been heard. So here he's summarizing his quest. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. He sums it down. He makes it so simple. Honor God. Obey God. And you will have the best life you can possibly have this side of the pearly gates. Now, when he wrote this, it was before Jesus came. Jesus died for our sins to take away that disease potential. We're going to sin until we go to heaven, but at least he took away the consequence of that. And he says that when he comes back for us, he will take that nature out of us so sin will no longer be our default option. In fact, since we've already chosen righteousness, sin will no longer even be a possibility. That's why we come to Jesus. He forgives us of our sin. He died in our place to take the punishment for sin. He brings us to heaven and then removes the potential for sin. No sin, no harm. Life will be good for all of eternity after Jesus comes back. One more thing and then I'm done. Pascal, the guy I talked about at the beginning, he's famous for this thing called Pascal's Wager. How many of you have ever heard that expression before, Pascal's Wager? Okay, a few of you. It is quite famous. And here's what Pascal says. It goes something like this. Hopefully I don't slaughter it. He says, there's either a God or there's not. Let's just call that a 50-50 for the moment. Are you going to bet your destiny on the fact that there's not or that there is? Because you're going to live your life one way or the other, as if God exists or if God doesn't. Those are your only two choices. So he says, wager well. Because if God doesn't exist, no loss. But if God does exist, there's the potential for huge gain and huge loss. So obviously, Pascal's wager is wager on God. Now, there's more to it than that. Of course, you've got to understand who God is and intellectually choose to follow him. 
But Pascal was brilliant. He just cut it right down to the very simple. There's either a God or there's not. If there's no God, you've got nothing to worry about. But if there is, you have the greatest potential and the greatest potential for harm, both. So wage wisely. And that's what I would like to leave you with this morning. If you've not yet made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ, I would just urge you to really think on that commitment and wager wisely. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the brilliant men that have gone before us. I thank you for Pascal. I thank you for Solomon. And even for guys like Nietzsche, who we can learn from. He took the wrong path, but we can learn by his mistakes. And I pray, Lord, for those who are listening, that they would truly consider you, not as a passing fancy, not, not as something they sort of believe in, sort of don't, not really, but as the God who is there, the God who is not dead. And that you would speak into their hearts, call them to yourselves, that they would be passionate to find you and follow you with that same passion. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.